our children watched Flubber for the first time. I don't know if you remember that movie with Robin Williams. There's a, a scene, which I'm sure you've seen this if you haven't seen that or don't remember this, <clears throat> where the alarm goes off and it sets a marble on its track. And you've seen those super elaborate marble tracks. They go up and down and then they go around spinny things and up elevators through pulleys. And <clears throat> in this scene, there is a uh, that original alarm sets off the marble in the track that ends up hitting a switch for the toaster and a robot to cook some eggs, all ending up in breakfast on the table. Uh, I wish we had one of those. That'd be really awesome. But anyways, this is a, a chain reaction, as we would call it. There's one action that sets off this whole course. And in this case, we have a chain reaction in our passage. The alarm as it were, this initial action is from God. God completes an action that sets off a, a progressive uh, set, series of events that ends in really a, a, a fullness or um, I think a larger measure of understanding in the apostles and, and in the church in Jerusalem, and there is glory to God in what he is doing in the world. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to see today. The way we're going to make through our text is going to be looking carefully at verse 44 through 48. And then <clears throat> after that, I'll, I'll call to duty some. And then with 11 through 14, or 1 through 14 of chapter 11, you all have seen that text. This is the second time it happened, so I won't say much, but I will comment specifically on 15 through 17, and we'll talk through the details, and hopefully uh, this section will be locked in your mind because it is the, uh, really, in a few chapters, what has happened is the, the hinge on, on which the book of Acts turns. You've really been waiting for this shoe to drop concerning the Gentiles, and so that's, that's what we're encountering today. <clears throat> the first thing that we see as I look here, look at verse 44. It, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, you remember previously he had been preaching the message of the gospel. That, that's what happens in verse 34 through 43. And so as he's preaching the gospel, in the middle of his sermon, the Lord doesn't let him finish apparently, the Holy Spirit falls on those who have heard the word of the gospel, and then they believe. <clears throat> Here is an amazing act, because in the middle of preaching the gospel, what is, should be in our minds is that the triune God is acting. The Father, who has exalted his Son to David's throne, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father as we confess in the Nicene Creed, now in this portion pours out yet again the Holy Spirit onto the Gentiles this time rather than onto the Jews. We have a re repeat of the days of Pentecost. There is an unfolding on a different group of people. And this is done even in accordance with heavenly visions and <clears throat> what we see here is Luke driving forward this story. If, if you're catching the book of Acts, 
Luke at this point is trying to pound home the theological meaning of these events. You're not supposed to just remember the events themselves, but attach the meaning to them. And hopefully we can get a a solid understanding of what what they do mean here today. Now, just as a word of qualification, I think that's needed. We need to say that the impartation of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit here, um, is best summarized by Calvin. So I just quote him at this point. It says, these gifts, that is the pouring out of the Spirit, these gifts mentioned by Luke differ indeed from the grace of regeneration. That is what we call being born again. That's not what grace is being given here. And yet, undoubtedly, God did this by means, or did by this means, seal both Peter's doctrine, that is the gospel, and also their faith and godliness which heard them. So this is a sealing of the faith that they already had. As we explained previously, God had already converted Cornelius. That's why sinners, uh, sinners who don't have their prayers heard, his offering was heard before the Lord. He was awaiting the Christ he is a God-fearer in, in the right way. But he had not yet received the apostles' doctrine. <laughs> there is no New Testament scriptures yet. He had to receive this for the first time. So those waiting on the Christ to come hear about him. And then because they are already believers with the Spirit, now have a, a fuller measure and an impartation of, of this extraordinary manifestation of the of the spirit here speaking in tongues that is other languages so that's my qualification he's a believer and he comes to a fuller experience of the spirit here now you have verse 45 which is at um at this event that's seen the jewish christians who had accompanied peter to this later he says six of them were all amazed this is the same thing that we'll see later with the rest of the Jews, and and hopefully you can feel amazed here in a minute. But they stand astonished because of two reasons. Uh, First is theological, second is testimonial, I call it. But the first reason they're astonished is in verse 45. Namely, it says, And the believers who among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, that's an interpretation of what had happened, okay? That's not what they, um, what they saw. Their testimonial is they saw these men, just like they did previously, speaking in tongues as on the day of Pentecost. That's what they saw. That's their testimony. They saw that the Gentiles are now included into the salvation of Israel's Messiah, Israel's Messiah, and they're Gentiles, astonishing and their theological explanation that comes is in this verse it says even on the gentiles are also something that although it should have been expected seemed very uh vague in the minds of of peter as well as the rest of the jews though it should have been their expectation you remember peter preached his first sermon, and in chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, he says these words. After uh, they say, well, what do we do to be saved? He says, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, that is the Jews and their descendants, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. <laughs> the, the point that he made himself by the power of the Spirit is that the gift of the Spirit is not just for ethnic Israel and their children, but for the nations. This is the common language that are used. Those who are far off, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, have been brought near and made citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. Far off. Uh, all those who are called. And yet this reality is uh, puzzling, amazing in the beginning because of really their expectations from the Old Testament that are being expanded, clarified by the apostles' doctrine and by the work of God. <clears throat> now we see, having been amazed and understood now that the salvation has been granted to the Gentiles, <clears throat> the next step in our chain reaction here is this amazing rhetorical statement that's given by Peter it's a negative question, and you'll notice Luke, when he's making his point, it, you just go through the book of Acts, and you highlight those points, and you know what Acts is all about. <laughs> this is how Luke makes his decisive points, by asking these pointed questions that all of us seem to know the answer to when, immediately when they're read. <clears throat> Verse 40, 40, the end of 46 and 47, it says, Then Peter declared... After they had saw them speaking in tongues and having the spirit on them, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And the answer is no, no one can withhold baptism from these. No one can hinder the water as it is. So Peter asked this question in a negative sense. I think it's always great to positivize, make it positive so that we have crystal clarity about what this means. If we are to put it positively, Peter proclaims all these who have received the Spirit are now qualified by God to be baptized as a Christian. No one may withhold water from them now. This is the point. This is the point. Thus, it's no surprise then that Peter turns around right away and says, be baptized. He commands them. He doesn't suggest, say, maybe in the future you should do this. He says, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he commands baptism to happen. <clears throat> it bears repeating, but as you see here, he says, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, just because it's Jesus's name doesn't exclude the Father or the Spirit, <clears throat> because name in the Bible, as we have learned, does um, actually refers to every everything that is revealed about the the person, specifically here Jesus, and Jesus can't be understood apart from his eternal participation in the divine being or the co-eternal, co-equal persons of the Father and Son or Father and the Spirit. The Father, Son and the Spirit all lived equal eternally 
together in perfect bliss. And, and so to be baptized in the name of, the, in, of Jesus is to be baptized in the name of the triune God. <clears throat> and for sake of clarity, I think, just as a ministerial thing, uh, I think that if you ever um, baptize anybody, I think the most important or best words are found in Matthew 28, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, because that's what's meant here in Acts as well, though they have a different understanding of name. Now, just as that aside said, we ought to notice that Peter commanding baptism means that the institution itself is not up for debate. It's not a matter of subjective desire merely. It, it, it is incumbent. It's a law, a requirement for every Christian in every age to submit themselves to the proper authorities and undergo this rite, undergo the, the waters of baptism. It's not a, a matter which is left to the realm of the conscience that can be left undone. That would be called sin because it would be a breaking of the commands of God. And so as a practical, I think I need to say this in a Baptist context, particularly, I think as a practical application to us just at this very point is we ought not to waste any extra time calling for somebody to be baptized. If, if we know of a person, um, we ought to replicate and admonish the same way that Peter does. It seems that the pattern in Acts very clearly, Calvin agrees with this as well, though he has different theological formula for his view of baptism, um, that the first step of faith, uh, the first step of, of repentance, the first sign of repentance is immediately being baptized. Now, I don't think we have to have a baptismal always ready. Uh, However, I think it's important for us to not unnecessarily delay anyone from baptism. We're we're waiting for a credible profession of faith, not a mature profession of faith, not um, not a specific age to check that box. We're not waiting for a certain number of meritorious Christian works. Rather, we're waiting for an accurate, incredible profession of faith. And, and so I, I would just call us to uh, follow that example and emphasize baptism more strongly in our personal spheres. <clears throat> With that said, in this first section, now there's a transition. He, at this point, moves into chapter 11 which is a large restatement and summary of what has been said. So I'll make my comments bearing on the bulk majority of it, but we'll just say something on verse 1 and 14 and following. But you'll see here in verse 1 that after this event with Peter and these six other brothers and the the house filled with the Gentiles – Uh, that Cornelius brought in getting ready for salvation, everybody who's waiting on the Messiah. Now, he, um, without any delay of time, it seems, there is a quick spreading of the news that the Gentiles had received the word of God. 
<clears throat> so throughout all of Judea, but especially in Jerusalem, where the apostles are, sort of like the headquarters of the Christian faith at this time, the, the highest authorities at the time now have heard uh, the word. This has come back to them. <clears throat> and so when Peter arrives, he has a welcoming party of criticizers. He has people who are like, I'm not sure about what's going on here. <clears throat> Though I'm sure Peter expected this himself. He was visited by a vision whereby he was alleviated of some of his hesitations. You remember that he was unwilling. He said, no, as we covered here, I uh, have never put any of those four-footed creatures in my mouth. I, I haven't done that at all. And the Lord revealed to him something that <clears throat> caused him to understand more fully what Jesus Christ was doing in this new era that had come about. So it's right and expectable to see other fellow ethnically Israelite Christians having some hesitations and some pause at this, this moment. They had not had the same heavenly vision. So what does Peter do? He informs them of what God has done so that they might understand <clears throat> the fullness of the gospel. So Peter arriving, receiving criticism, now unfolds <clears throat> this whole story again. It's worth noting that, you know, Luke could summarize in a way and say that, I mean, paper and ink in those days are, uh, are not cheap and inexpensive the same way that we have. Uh, space is at a premium in those days. <laughs> um, and so it would have been very easy for him to just summarize and say, and he said what had happened, right? Some sort of summary statement to uh, save some 14 verses. <clears throat> but it shows you how important it is that, that these things are recorded and how monumental this event is in its theological significance. It's, it's not enough, according to the Spirit, just to summarize what had happened again, but he has to go through the whole story. It should tell us that this event is so significant that it, that it is actually feels like a, a monumental change in redemptive history. It's this great expansion of the gospel at this point. <clears throat> so, because we have covered that in sermons previous, if you haven't heard them, uh, just go back. But what we should see that is an addition in verse 14 is uh, said in these words. Verse 14 says, He <clears throat> will declare to you, this is the angel to Peter, he or to uh, Cornelius, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. It's important to note that Luke makes the connection very clear that no one is saved apart from the message of the gospel. This is a necessary requirement. No gospel, no salvation. There's nobody in no other nation who's ever been saved apart from the gospel, even in the Old Testament, which was not as full as it is now. Salvation is in Jesus alone, and so it requires communication about who he is, what he has done, why he has died, why he was resurrected, 
and why we need him for our own salvation. And this message is, in a sense, the keys to the kingdom. If somebody's to believe this and take this as a set of keys, it will unlock the door of the kingdom of heaven, as it were. It's important to know that the gospel is the means by which salvation comes. God would not have saved Cornelius in any other manner. And it's important for Luke to note those things. Now in verse 15 through 17 is the all important argument and the thing that is new really in this section and the decisive point for Peter and for Luke. So we'll cover this just briefly and we'll unpack it. Okay, so verse 15 through 17 reads this way. As I began to speak, that is the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Pentecost, right? And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, Just so we're clear, and we have it in other words, Peter's argument is this. He first describes how the Spirit fell on those Gentiles who trusted in Jesus. And he notes that this same thing was experienced by Jews on the days of Pentecost. 120 in the upper room and then more outside after. But further, Peter shows how... This was already previously prophesied by Jesus before Pentecost had happened. It was about the date of Pentecost and it was about the apostles. That's what it was, who it was written to. And those first to believe the 120, it was for them. They, They were awaiting that. And now maybe not fully to their expectation, it seems, there is the furthering of this to the Gentiles also. And Peter shows, um, by the way, this quotation is in 1, 5, chapter 1, verse 5. But he says, after recounting God's mighty act, he says in the same, I wish, I wish it was the same in, in uh, the ESV, but he says, who was I to hinder God? Uh, literal words, same as was in verse 47, who can hinder the waters for baptizing, literally in both of those. So there's a, there's a parallel here <clears throat> that we'll come to in a second. But first we should ask about the citation. Uh, I think maybe on first glance, it seems a little curious, like, okay, well, how does that make sense of what's going on in the turning to the Gentiles? <clears throat> what Peter brings about is this quotation that is in Acts 1.5. You remember 
Jesus was appearing to the apostles and, and the disciples for a period of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And he says, wait, it's, it, wait, wait for it. It's going to come upon you. That is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they're waiting for in the upper room. <clears throat> but w- what is it about these two different baptisms that he wants to bring up? <clears throat> and I say to begin that really the comparison has less to do with the baptisms themselves, but rather the one baptizing John as over against Jesus. You'll notice that in the quotation itself. John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John has a certain thing and Jesus has another. And so we should say that there was no defect at, at all or whatsoever in John's baptism. It was uh, proved to be a good one since Christ himself underwent that baptism. John tried to stop him and he said, permit it. For this is the way I fulfill all righteousness. And so <clears throat> he gives approval of John's baptism. There's, there's no problem with John's baptism in that sense. And in reality, it's not substantially different than Christian baptism. It's just anticipatory. It's waiting on the Christ to come. Jesus was not revealed as of yet. However, it's intended purpose. John's baptism in the Jordan was limited in scope to ethnic Israel. That's what was prophesied in Isaiah, and that's what was given. John chapter 1 verse 31, John the Apostle tells us about what the Baptist testified. Quote, for this purpose I come baptizing with water, that he, that is Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. Not the world as of yet. You remember Jesus in his ministry goes from, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. And so he didn't even go to the Gentiles at different times. And then by the end of the story is where there's a shift. There's a change. Jesus' baptism, though uh, the Jews awaiting the Christ were baptized by John, Jesus' baptism is far greater in scope because the authority he has been given is far greater in scope. Jesus is said to be, according to uh, the scriptures quoted, Psalm 16, 110, Psalm 2, Joel 2, in Acts chapter 2, the conclusion of that is Jesus Christ and Lord, and specifically... That is, let all the house of Israel know. That's what Peter said at that time. Let all the house of Israel know. But just last chapter, in chapter 10, what happened to Cornelius? Then Peter understands and says, oh, now I know. In every nation, Jesus is Lord over all. He had experienced a widening of his understanding This baptism that was for Israel, now in Christ, has become expanded to a global scope. He had understood that he's not only Lord over Israel, he's the only Messiah for the whole world. And he's the world's Messiah. 
And so there is a, a stunning revelation had that, <clears throat> that the scope of, of Christian baptism is expanded. We, we get that in the Great Commission. All nations baptize, make disciples of them, baptizing them. No longer is it isolated to a single nation, but rather <clears throat> Christ bestows on, on all the nations a singular ordinance, um, initiatory ordinance, that is baptism. So the, the comparison, the point of it is to show that the, the scope of baptism has expanded to all the nations, which, which means something more that we'll cover here in just a second. <clears throat> but one other further distinction, and this is, I think, very clear on our reading, maybe more clear than, than that connection, is that th- th- there is a distinction between John and Jesus. John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The, the distinction is, unlike earthly ministers like myself, with the sacrament of baptism, if I perform it, I cannot make a single person a recipient of salvation. I, I can't affect the work of salvation in somebody's heart. I, I, when somebody undergoes water, if, there's, if, if it is not joined by faith, then, then it's, it's a meaningless symbol. However, Jesus is different than, than John or any earthly minister. That is, when he pours out the Spirit, he shows that he has the power and fully displays his ability to grant salvation to whomever he pleases. <laughs> he, is, uh, he makes salvation efficacious. He, he accomplishes it. So when he baptizes... Men are saved, uh, unlike uh, any man who does that merely. <clears throat> That's not to say that these things aren't joined. I could say a lot more about that. But the point that Luke is making is that Christ has freely bestowed salvation on the nations, just as he did ethnic Israel, who could begrudge his generosity. This is an action of God, not of any man. And we need the sign of tongues. The church needed it. Otherwise, they wouldn't believe it. The Jews would have stayed separate from the Gentiles. Peter falls nearly into condemnation in Galatians chapter 2 for withdrawing from the Gentiles and not eating with them as though they're unclean or something like that. It was necessary. This is astounding. So that's why we see in verse 18, when they had heard these things, they zipped their lips. Now, I don't know what the intermission period between falling silent and then glorifying God is, like silent and then looking all around like, did he just tell us this stuff? <laughs> like, whoa, they're amazed. <clears throat> now, I think in this room, we're all Gentiles. And we, you know, Gentiles have been being saved for 2,000 years. So it doesn't feel all that extraordinary to us because it's like a lot of history for us. However, it's important to go back at that time and to recognize how astonishing this would have been. This is the final piece of the chain reaction that they are silenced and they are glorifying God because, as they said, he is granted the Gentiles, repentance 
that leads to life. <clears throat> so what were they stunned about? Well, partially it was tongues, but, but not primarily. What they were really astonished about is that God was giving salvation to more than the Jews. So <clears throat> because this is astounding, um, and I feel that we sometimes take it for granted, I want to unpack it a little bit. Why was it astounding? What would have caused such a, a stir? Why would the initial response be criticism from Peter himself and then from these guys? Why is that the initial reaction? And in some theologies, that is the initial reaction still. But that is because in the Old Testament, there is a hard separation between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and every other nation. Because God, in his plan of salvation, had enshrined a separation in the ceremonial law. So that even if you became a proselyte, you still weren't a full Jew. There's still a distinction between you and that other saved Gentile over there. There was always a distinction. You could never be a full participant in the worship of God at those times. And so this separation is ingrained like like it's it's really hard to see oneness in people but what was done they began to understand here and then and began to glorify God because they realized that the ceremonial law that is laws related to circumcision dietary restrictions sacrifices, clothing materials, sowing of certain kinds of seeds and fields, hairstyles, and many more. All of these things had been fulfilled in Christ and set aside. The moral law and even even the moral binding principles are still in force. However, at this time, all of those things still pointed to God's people as ethnically Jewish. And now they understand as those things have been set aside, God makes no distinction any longer. That's the words that are used. uh, As you saw in the text, verse 12, the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. That's exactly what they were criticized, that they criticized him for. You made no distinction between us Jews and them unclean Gentiles. (laughs) Yeah. This is the glory of what has happened. Namely, God has made them his covenant people as well without requiring them to become Jews. They have been saved. And you know what the only requirement is that's told here? Loud and clear. Verse 17, faith in Jesus Christ. They receive salvation when they believe just like us. This is the glory of the gospel that we ourselves contribute nothing. And there's no law that we can keep um, as it relates to making ourselves right from God. Jew or Gentile, we are part of God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let us let us. 
like drive this point home and make an application here. <clears throat> I might spend all of next sermon going over uh, the furtherance of applying this because what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to drive this home and give you the, the principle which needs further practical application. <clears throat> but this will be um, what you never need to, what you need to always remember and never forget. You might remember that in, Old Te- in the Old Testament, Israel was identified famously as the son of God. The son of God, okay? This is <clears throat> what was said probably as you all know in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that <clears throat> Matthew, sometimes from those who don't understand Matthew or what he's doing, um, give him flack for applying Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I call my son, which is specifically about the nation of Israel. He applies that to Jesus and said it's been fulfilled when, when Herod died and Jesus was taken from Egypt back into, back into um, um, Galilee. But <clears throat> we know that Jesus is the greater son who has completely been, has been completely faithful to all of God's commands, never once breaking them. He is true Israel. Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of all Israel was ever supposed to be. And that is why he is called the son of God. He is the true Israel and the true offspring of Abraham, offspring of David. That's how his genealogies open up. True offspring of Abraham, true offspring of David. He is true Israel. Therefore, Paul argues strongly in Galatians chapter 3 into chapter 4 in these words, and I quote them at length. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so in verse 4, 6, because you are sons of God, or because you are sons, God has sent his spirit or the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. (laughs) You see the connection that's made here? Jesus is the son. And you are in Jesus. So you are sons. Jesus is true Israel, and you're in Jesus, so you're true Israel. That's the point. God's people are made up of those who have faith in Christ Jesus and no one else. This is how God fulfills his promises to Israel, by fulfilling them in Christ and joining the Gentiles, the nations, to him. It should be obvious to you when he says there's no Jew or Greek, no male or female, that he's not erasing these distinctions of male and female. We don't become an amorphous other, 
or something like that. Of course, that's not the problem. He doesn't erase male or female, ethnicity, or even class. People are still called poor. People are still called rich. These things still exist, and in fact, they're not bad things in and of of themselves. They're actually created goods, something that God has designed. In fact, it would be utterly abominable and wrong-headed to maintain that there's no longer fixed creational structure like male and female, right? That, that would be utter sin. It's what we're hearing in our day. <clears throat> Rather, the point is to say that, <clears throat> well, well, let me just finish this thought. If we are to um, understand the scriptures this way and we don't live according to God's design, then as Christians, we're obligated to call somebody sin. A, a man is not a woman and a woman is not a man. If they act or live that way, they are in sin. They need to repent or they will perish, right? We must live according to these creational things. I, I should not uh, dye my skin black or something like that. God has created me a particular ethnicity from a particular part of the world. That These things we ought not to change. What this actually means, and the point of this is to say that our our union with Jesus Christ, through that, we have a oneness with each other that makes our differences a non-issue. They're they're no longer definitional in in the sense, in comparison to what is common among us, that is Christ. This will pose problems for you in your mind because you're like, well, we have different churches with different beliefs and stuff like that. I'll apply that next week. That's what I intend to do. But let me make this point and understand me. Our unity in Christ is so important and so central that even the strongest factors of division that push us apart have been as though they were thrown down canceled and abolished. It's as if because of the unity we have that they no longer exist. That, that's, that's, that's what it's like. It's, it's just like the statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the glory, or maybe it's chapter 3. Uh, don't quote me. It's one of those chapters where he says that the sufferings that they have, which they're despairing of in the Corinthians, the sufferings that they have, the, the sufferings that you have in this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is being prepared for you. So next to each other, it's like one doesn't even exist. That's the same point that's being made here, that when you compare our differences that are real, that are actually even good, when you compare them as, it's, as if they're nothing in light of the oneness, the unity we have in Christ. Now, I want to apply this practically and help you make sense of how we do distinguish with one another and why those things are good and how those things become inappropriate and so forth like that. But what I want to do is make my final application about the table because this is what the meaning of the Lord's Supper really, excuse me, really is. This is a chapter before what we're used to reading, and so I apply it now. Listen to these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verse 16 and uh, yeah, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not koinonia or participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread we, that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? It's re- referring to his blood, not ours. His body, not ours, right? Referring to Christ. But then watch what he does. Because there is one bread, that is one body of Christ, we who are many are one body. For we all, koinonia, we all partake. We all share in the one bread. What does he mean? Paul powerfully stresses the unity of the Christian church and our fellowship in the one bread and one cup. He states emphatically that through the elements, we koinonia, that is, we participate in the same blood and body of Christ. So it's amazing. He, he really moves from Christ's literal body to speaking about us like like as the same thing (laughs) he he doesn't make a radical distinction although there are some right i'm not christ (laughs) and neither are you yet we're part of the same body literally part of the body of jesus in a spiritual reality that is hard to express in words in fact most theologies say that this is a, a mystery The Holy Spirit causes us in this wonderful and mysterious way to be united together in Christ. And so when we come to the Lord's table every week, when we come to Christ's table, what I want you to do is to not make this a meal primarily. I'm talking about orders. I'm not talking about... um, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the order in which we think of these things and we, we appreciate this meal. When we come to Christ's table, don't think of it as a meal primarily about you. It, it's not about you primarily with all of your individual distinctions. When we come to the table, it's not about our individual selves merely, although it is about us, of course. Rather, what it's primarily about is the Lord Jesus Christ and us in him. It's about, to put it this way, his life and his body, which we share in. And his body is ours, not merely mine. That makes a different dynamic at the table. Now, I'm not saying don't do this, but... Go with me. Understand my illustration. A lot of times we are so self-focused that we think about us and our own selves merely. And we forget that there's, a, there's one body here shown in this meal. This meal is not just about me. It's about us. And so Christ church, when you come to the table, cultivate 
a heart that cherishes our shared forgiveness, our shared life, our sharing in the one and only new covenant in his body and blood. Let us pray. Lord, we look to you as we come to your table now, and we ask that you would be with us in our participation according to your ordinance in Jesus' name. Amen.